Welcome to Apologetic Simplified. I'm Leah. And I'm Andrew. This is a podcast for regular people with real questions about the Christian faith. Click that subscribe button or follow on your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and send us an email anytime at apologeticsimplified at gmail.com. Welcome back to Apologetic Simplified. I am so glad that you have tuned in today. It is just me. Well, not really. Andrew's not here. Uh, he's busy with church things and like he works at Chick-fil-A and there's this, you know, this virus going around. So they're getting ready for that. But I'm excited because my friend Carrie Cooper is here. We met hey. in class at DTS at Dallas Theological Seminary. And today we're going to be talking about a paper that Carrie and I have been working on together. I'm really excited to share it with you, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. I want to let you know that we got so excited about the conversation that we were having that this episode was going to be over an hour. And I don't want it to be over an hour, so we've decided to split it up. So, um, yeah, it's going to be split up. That's why you have part one and part two on this thing. So we just put one segment break and one and one in the other because this is my first time splitting up an episode. But it was just, oh my goodness, such good content, and I'm excited to share it with you. Now, Carrie, I don't know if you know this, but I don't always stay in touch with my friends from semester to semester. So being able to be friends with you um, after class and then working on this paper was a huge blessing. I know. Me too. Yeah. It's different. It's always good to have somebody that you kind of keep keep track of over yeah. the semesters. Yeah. The class we were in together, actually, I've had several friends that have come out of that class. That's been pretty cool. Me too. Yeah. That tells you that tells you it was an amazing class. It really was. It was actually with uh, Dr. Fanton, who was on this podcast at the end of last year. So if you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend it. But of all the guests that I've had on, Carrie's probably the most prepared. Um, not because my other guests didn't know their stuff. They absolutely did. But Carrie used to work in radio. And so she knows the whole deal. I was running her <laughs> through it. And she's like, yeah, I know, Leah. This is, I got this. <laughs> yeah. I did that for about three years uh, in a, a station here in Dallas and their affiliate stations across the country. And it was it was one of those experiences, like if you have, you know, the burning bush experience of watching God work and do incredible things, that was one of those times where I just look back at that as really amazing season in my life. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, I'm grateful that you get to use your uh, old muscles, so to speak, again <laughs> yeah. on this yeah. podcast, and glad that you're here Absolutely. with us. <laughs> so the reason I have Carrie on today is she and I were working on a paper for the Evangelical Theological Society, which was having a meeting this weekend, uh, and you may or may not have figured out from the was, although I guess if you're listening to this, like, as it comes out, you're like, yeah, Elia, we know that's probably from COVID-19 and everything's canceled, but if you're listening to this later down the road, it was yeah. COVID-19, everything was canceled. So we didn't get to submit this paper, but it, it was interesting. We started working on this paper, working on a proposal last semester, and, or early this, I don't know, it's all a blur. And the, the call for papers was for uh, papers on the topic of the problem of evil. So Carrie and I decided we wanted to work on something together. We started talking about the problem of evil. We started talking about Gen Z and like the issues they struggle with in their faith. And somehow we ended up talking about women in the church and gay Christians. And the paper just took on a life of its own. Yeah, it did. But, you know, that was it was kind of fun, though, to let it 
naturally spiral, you know, in a different direction. It ended up being something we were both very interested in. And I think that's why, you know, this this podcast today will be very fruitful because we're both really excited about what we've learned. Yeah, it was like if you're reading a really good book and then you get to like the climax and you're like, oh man, something cool is about to happen and someone steals your book. And you're like, wait, (laughs) what'd you do with my book? (laughs) I know, exactly. Yeah. So we're going to finish the book today. (laughs) We are. We're going to continue to flesh it out and um, share it with you guys. We're still hoping to publish it um, in some other way, but we're still working on what all that's going to look like. But we're going to share it with you guys. And so we are going to be talking about women and gay Christians and their involvement with the church and like what is their role in the church and um carrie in a little bit will tell us about the dividing wall imagery that we used in the paper to talk about this um dividing wall between women and gay christians and with the evangelical church so we'll be getting into that soon um but for now we're gonna move into our first segment break sayeth what Sayeth what? For Sayeth what this week, I just want to draw attention to all the weird and wonderful things people have created in the midst of COVID-19. I'm already a fan of this particular group of people, but there's the Holderness family. They produce um, a bunch of silly, goofy songs and video content anyway, but and they have been putting something out every single day, which it's not easy to put out a two to three minute video every day. That's really impressive um, that they have had some hilarious songs about parodies you can sing while you wash your hands for 20 minutes. Other songs talking about being uh, <laughs> trying to homeschool your kids and help them learn algebra when you don't remember it. They were hilarious and I saw another one goodness I don't even remember but there have been so many funny songs funny content coming out since people are stuck at home and even beyond just being funny there's been a lot of people doing online concerts there's been artists and actors reading books online and it's kind of cool to see how our community and by community I actually mean like the whole world has come together to just help us have light spirits, even if it's just for a few minutes while we watch the video and it makes us laugh. Laughter is so powerful. So I love seeing all that creative content. Uh, I love laughing at it and uh, just having my day brightened. So I hope you'll look some of that stuff up too and just enjoy the creativity that's come out of this. And this has been Sayeth What. Sayeth What. And we are back. So let's dive into this. That sounds weird to talk about diving into a wall, <laughs> diving into a dividing wall. It sounds well, really painful. Actually, it has been painful though, right? Because you and I <laughs> both, over the process of researching this, I remember I would text you and I'm like, I can't stop crying. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was so emotional for me to do this research and realize that you know, some of the things that the evangelical church does today is rooted in things that have happened so long ago, but affects us today. And so it's actually kind of explained some of my own experiences in church and also 
you know, kind of, it, it made me sad in one sense, but it's also like, okay, this is freeing. Now I know why we, why we do what we do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? absolutely. It's, it's funny. And like, again, we'll get into this in a minute, but just some of the background and information we studied before we even got into our major issues nowadays, yeah. it just, everything clicked. We're like, oh, Okay. I got it. (laughs) Yeah. Everything makes more sense now. Yeah, it does. It really does. Well, moving back into that wall, um, can you explain the dividing wall imagery, which we got from Ephesians 2 and why we found it to be an appropriate image for this divide? Okay. So you may remember that in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking to uh, or he's he's telling his readers that Gentiles who were once distant from God have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so there's not any more division between Jew and Gentile, between, um, you know, and in Galatians, he goes on to say no more division between slave and free, male and female. But here specifically in Ephesians, he's saying that Gentiles are now brought into God's family of faith. And then Paul explains what that really means. So he's, he's, he kind of backtracks a little bit and he says, here's what where you were spiritually. You were distant from God. You had no hope. You, you did not have Christ. You were absolutely dead in your sins. And, and now in Christ, you've been brought near. But he goes to, he explains about this dividing wall as really this metaphor of the picture of the temple. So if you think about the Jewish Old Testament temple, which was still standing at this time when Jesus is, you know, we're we're talking about New Testament, when Jesus walked the earth, he's saying that this temple that exists, there's this inner sanctum that only the high priest was allowed to enter once a year. And then if you stretch out from that, there's this a little bit uh, wider access where People could come, men could come, offer their sacrifices, and the sacrifices would be made on the altar, and the priest would give it, uh, you know, make it in uh, on the the family's behalf to God, and that's how people atoned for their sins. But then outside of that particular area was the court of women, and so women were restricted; they could not go where the altar was. And then if you have proselytes, man, I cannot talk today. If you have people that are Gentiles that want to worship God, then they, what they would do is they would first have to convert to Judaism, which means they'd have to be circumcised, the men, and then they would have to commit to, you know, obeying the Mosaic law. But what Paul's saying here is, okay, there is this imagery that divides Gentiles and and really women too, but especially Gentiles in general, from access to God. There's mm-hmm. the Mosaic Law, which was all these laws about dietary restrictions, restrictions on what kind of clothes, how to keep your house from getting mold, like a, a ton of different things. Yeah. But it was to purify that people from their pagan neighbors. And so the pagan neighbors being Gentiles. And so now you've got this division that exists between one small group of people and the rest of the planet. So now Paul's saying, okay, Christ has demolished that division. He's demolished any type of 
ac uh, limited access and has actually opened the floodgate so anyone can access God uh, through the blood of Christ. So does that make sense? Did I explain it? <laughs> yeah, you explained it really well. Okay. It's, it's funny. We had to write a paper on this for one of our Greek classes. And so yeah. that has really, really paid off for this paper. <laughs> it's paid off being able to go back and reference all those things. Uh, yes, it did. Yeah, that was, a, um, that was a very helpful paper. Yes. Yes. So let's then jump from the first century to the 19th century. Because before we can even talk about the division that exists between women in the evangelical church and gay Christians in the evangelical church, we need to go back, actually, to Charles Darwin. Darwinism created um, great turmoil within the church, we'll say. Some believed um, that they should embrace the research that Charles Darwin did and the implications from it. Those ended up being called modernists or liberals um, nowadays. And then there was the more conservative conservative evangelical, even fundamentalist branch that came out the other side, which said, no, we cannot affirm Darwinism. In fact, and this was down the road, but um, still in the early 20th century, in fact, we can't trust culture. So if this is what culture is saying is true, then we need to be against that. And of course, they had their biblical support for why they wanted to maintain their beliefs about creation and probably had good biblical support for why they didn't want to be engaging with culture, even the verses about being in the world but not of the world. But it created this reactionary response where it was less about this is what we believe to be true and more about you guys are wrong and so we are against whatever you are for. Yeah, absolutely. And so nowadays, without realizing that, we can see the continued ripple effects. Even, I think it's been 150 years or so since Darwin. Mm -hmm. But we can still see the effects of, I disagree with you, not because I have strong convictions that I'm right, which you probably do, but because like you are wrong because of what you represent. Well, and I think that that's also fed into this mentality in the church in evangelicalism that says, I'm going to distrust anything that the culture says, and I'm only going to use my use the Bible as the one and only standard for life and truth and truth, which yeah, yes, I want to affirm that the Bible is the standard for life and truth. But what we're trying to help people to understand is that no one in the Bible hermited themselves away from the culture, right. right? They engaged with the culture. And in fact, the people that we see who hermited themselves away from the culture, like the Pharisees, the scribes, those are always seen in a negative light. Sure, <laughs> right? yeah, that's we a good never, point. We never see those people, even though there might be one or two here and there that come up that we go, okay, yes, that guy, he gets it. But for the most part, on the whole, they they aren't seen as um, people who are engaging the culture, and yeah. and which is what Jesus does, right? He right. what so he invites Matthew the tax collector and all of Matthew's lowborn friends and social 
the people on the low rung of the social ladder. Yeah. And Jesus goes to this party and he's criticized for it, right? And then same thing, like when he's at this dinner party that one of the Pharisees invites him over to his house and and who's washing his feet and bathing his feet with tears? It's not that guy. It's this woman yeah. who is either a woman of ill repute or might have been um, a woman who'd had demons exercised from her. But Christ has some harsh things to say to that Pharisee and says, the one who's forgiven much worships and loves much. And yeah. the one, the reverse is also true. Yeah. Something I think is interesting about that example is um, nowadays I hear like, well, I can't engage with a gay Christian, especially if maybe they're not living in what we would call a biblical ethic um, because of their other oh, lifestyle sinful. But looking at the people Jesus was with, like these tax collectors were probably cheating people out of their money. That was a sinful lifestyle. Like, yeah, <laughs> it was, it's not right. like Jesus was hanging out with like, I don't know, we get this idea in action movies where there's like the bad guys, but there's like the cool bad guys. Like, no, Jesus was hanging out yeah. with the people nobody liked. <laughs> and there was yeah. maybe good reason for that, but he did it anyway. Yeah. In fact, I was reading the book of Matthew, this uh, one of the chapters in Matthew this, this morning, and Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about that he's with... He is the one saving the prostitutes and, you know, the people that, that again, no one else in, in society is, is drawn to helping them, but Jesus is the one that interacts with them. Yeah. And so in a similar way, that's what we're trying to say here. You and I are trying to just expose a little bit of light to where we have shrouded ourselves so much in the dark from the culture that now we're not even reaching the culture anymore. And yeah. we've isolated ourselves from the culture. You know what other biblical character this made me think of just now? We didn't even have this in our paper. Maybe we should with whatever it comes to. Is Jonah. Yeah. Jonah had yeah. no interest in engaging the Ninevites because they were, yeah. you know, in his mind, they were terrible and deserved to die. Like, that's legitimately how he saw them. Well, they um, were pagans. They right. were idolaters. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he gets in, like, a lot of trouble for that. Like, God is clearly not happy with Jonah. <laughs> I mean, he's, yeah, the whole fish situation. But he the, he's not painted in a, a positive light in any way. He's one of those negative examples of, like, hey, don't be like this. <laughs> yeah, the one, one of the, you know, one prophet who isn't, doesn't have the best reputation in the sense that he didn't willingly go to... The, you know, the people that needed God the most was yeah. the un-God, God-influenced people or God-introduced people, you know. It's a good example. So let's talk about, I'd, I'd really like to hear what your personal takeaways were. Just like, what was God teaching you or did you learn something new? I mean, we both learned all kinds of new things, but <laughs> that, you, that you'd want to share. So one of the most important things that I've learned, let me let me kind of couch it with this. I've been teaching the Bible for about 18-ish years, uh, give or take. But I grew up in the church, so I've heard all of these stories in my head. But, you know, one of the, the biggest things that we've 
always taught in the churches I've been in has been to read scripture, get uh, understanding context. And by yes. context, we mean like who wrote it? When was it written? Who read it? What was the circumstances under which it was written? And maybe what was going on outside of that, but like just culturally in in that time, what was happening? So that's context. That's like if you if you and I text each other and then a thousand years from now, somebody finds our cell phones and says, what are they texting about? Yeah. They're going to want to know like what was going on during the coronavirus, you know. Where's all this toilet paper? <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, exactly. So in the same way, we do that for when we read when we read the Bible. But what I've noticed through this research is because there's this huge distancing of the church from the culture, they've also really clamped down on not taking in context when it applies to 1 Timothy chapter 2 about women shall be silent in church and they shall not teach. They shall be saved by childbearing, you know, that whole thing. Or when we talk about women submit to your husbands and uh, as, as Christ submits to the church, or Christ as submits, church as church submits to Christ, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, and then also slaves submit to your masters. So when you and I were in um, Dr. Fanton's class, that whole class was talking about setting the cultural stage mm -hmm. of what was happening during New Testament times so that when we read Paul and, you know, any of the other New Testament writers, we have a better idea of, okay, this is probably what was going on. Here's probably what the circumstances were. So is this a mandate for all time, for all people from now until the end of the age? Yeah. or do we need to consider that this might have been something that Paul or Peter or, you know, anybody else were specifically addressing? So that has been, I would think, if, now, why do we take context into account when we talk about Jonah? Like, okay, we know that the Ninevites were pagans. They were into idolatry. They, where was he? Where was Jonah? Uh, located compared to where Nineveh was located? How did he get there? Like this whole thing, we would research that. But no, we don't do that when when Paul talks about women should have head coverings. Well, why? Why do we, why do we set the cultural stage or context for every other book? But when Paul says two words or three sentences about women, we hone in on that and we ignore context. That it sh has shocked me actually, how willing we are to zero in on one or two sentences and ignore the rest of scripture or use those two or three sentences kind of as our proof text for how we're gonna mm -hmm. operate in the Christian world. Yeah, for a evangelical church, which strives to be exegetical in their teaching. I fear that sometimes they have their pet eisegesic, I don't know if that's a word, but um, eisegetic maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Taken out of context. Yeah. Um, versus that we use to make points that we feel like are valid. Yeah. Unfortunately. And I don't know, 
I will say that I don't think people, for the most part, set out to do that to harm somebody else. I, yeah. I really don't think that that's the intention. I just think I've grown up in the evangelical, you know, very, I wouldn't say extreme fundamentalist, but definitely more on the conservative side of evangelicalism. And I've, you know, I'm 49 years old. For most of my life, I've heard one narrative about mm -hmm. women's roles in the church. Now, were those maliciously delivered? I, no, they weren't. And they were given by well-meaning pastors and and elders and deacons and 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 I loved them. You know, I loved and respected those people. But I think there is a time when we have to, you know, put on our thinking caps and say, are we have we so withdrawn from the culture that we are so willing to divorce ourselves from biblical context? in applying reasonable and, you know, reasonable truth. Like it's yeah. reasonable. Would you mind um, breaking down a couple of those passages for us? Okay. So the, the passage is 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this is really, I would say, one of the proof texts that most evangelicals will use as a reason for why women are not permitted to teach men specifically. Okay. So start at verse, um, I mean, you could start chapter one, but let's start at chapter two because we don't have time for, <laughs> for to go through the whole thing. But verse eight says, so I want the men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger or dispute, Likewise, the women are to dress in suitable apparel with modesty and self-control. Their adornment should not be with braided hair and gold pearls, gold or pearls or expensive clothing, but with good deeds, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. A woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She must remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she was fully deceived, fell into transgression. Here's the last verse. But she will be delivered through childbearing if she continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, okay, for my paper that I did, and it was for Dr. Fanton's class, I made sure that I picked the ultra conservative voices and the ultra liberal liberal as well as like a middle ground so okay. i i looked at a wide range of commentaries and for those uh for those listening one of the things that we learn in in seminary is you have to back up every single one of your sentences in your papers with data from some source. So I mm -hmm. cannot just come and write down a whole bunch of my own ideas without supporting them from somebody else. So it, that's, you know, we do a lot of extensive research. So anyway, when we come to verse eight, one of the things that we want to talk about is, I would say, and I'm going to ask our listeners, how many in our listening audience require men in your church to pray with their hands lifted the entire worship service. So 
number one, I can almost guarantee. Now, we may do that when we're singing a song, but then everybody's doing that. Or some people aren't, some people are. But I'm talking specifically, Paul says, I want the men to pray in every place, not just, okay, now you're not even talking about worship service. Now you're talking about everywhere they go, they got to pray, walk around with their hands lifted up. So that sounds, come on, that sounds ridiculous. We understand that he was talking about something specific here and he was addressing a particular issue. So we understand that when we read that, but somehow we move to the next verse and we turn off our thinking caps and we say, uh-oh, women are to dress in suitable apparel with modesty and self-control. And they're talking about the, the adorning your hair with braids and pearls and you know all these fine clothing. Well, of those commentaries that I read, whether it was the super conservative or ultra liberal, almost to a voice, they agreed that there were particular women in this church that Paul was addressing. And this was not every woman. This was probably a few vocal women who had used their freedom in Christ to, well, they were like, well, I've, I am free. I, you know, Christ has freed me from, I am no longer the lowest member of society here. I have now been elevated to this, um, to status of men and I've been, you know, rescued. I've been delivered. And so there's, they came to this new status, new relationship. And now they're like, okay, I'm, I can do what I want. My husband doesn't have, you know, domination over me anymore. I can wear what I want. I can do my hair the way I want. And so they, they went overboard. So Paul is saying here, okay, tone it down, ladies, <laughs> bring it back in, you know, have, have dress with modesty. So there's that. Then we have that women who are good deeds with proper for women who profess reverence for God. So he's, again, he's talking about, he's saying, don't let your clothes and your appearance and your, you know, the makeup you wear, whatever it is, don't let that be your defining quality. Your, your defining quality as a Christian, as a woman of God, um, is, is your character. And so there's that. Then we get to, here's, now here comes the clinchers. A woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So now we have, here's, here's where people start, you know, putting their blinders on and they only look at these two verses and they forget that elsewhere in scripture that Paul in Romans 16 we, Paul names, I don't remember right off the top of my hand, but I'm going to say seven to eight women, let's say six to eight women by name that have either taught or have served as deacons or leaders in their church. Um, and he is commending them. And mm -hmm. so he's commending the Roman church. These ladies are excellent at doing what they do. And one of them was Priscilla and who she was a missionary and evangelist and she worked with her husband. So now when we get to this first Timothy passage, we have to think, okay, so why is it that in Romans, in Romans 16, Paul is saying all these amazing things about these women, but here in first Timothy, he's 
he's saying something like they can't talk. So we went from a woman is teaching and leading and being a deacon to they can't even talk. Mm -hmm. So something has to be, we, we have to put our, you know, our brains back on and think something must be going on in this situation that Paul is responding to. Is this a blanket statement for all women, for all churches, for all times, from Paul's time until the return of Christ? That we have to ask that question. But um, if you take into account that he elsewhere says that women are free, Galatians, that there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, that we are equal before God and then in Christ and then also this Romans 16. And I think there's elsewhere like in the book of Acts of talking about Priscilla and Aquila that they're teaching and you know evangelizing and bringing people to Christ. Well, if that were true, then only Aquila would be the one speaking and not Priscilla. And in fact, mm -hmm. Most commentators will say that because Priscilla's name is listed first in almost all of the mentions, I think there's only like one, maybe two, where she is not listed first, that that means either A, she was the wealthier one that was driving the ministry, or maybe like she had inherited money, or I don't know, she somehow she was the one driving the ministry, or that she was the primary teacher and he was along for the ride, or, you know, neither one. It could just be they listed her. But in that culture, for the woman to be listed first, something was up, right? Because most yeah. women weren't. I want to mention one more thing, because this is like the clincher on verse 13, in that for Adam was for, formed first, and then eat. In, then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, because she was fully deceived and fell into tran transgression. So this is what, sadly, uh, this is why I would call or text you crying when I we were researching over this, because these two verses, most of evangelicalism has gripped hold of so tightly as evidence that, as biblical evidence that women are inferior in every way in their intellect, in their creation, like God created Adam first, so he's preeminent. Then God created a second class being who had second class intellect, skills, gifts, abilities, and she is inferior in every way. Now, I know a lot of people are like, my church doesn't believe that. Let me tell you, one of my friends at school recently dealt with this very issue, and it was a prominent church in our area. So this is a this is real and live and active. And from the research that I found of those liberal and conservative and moderate voices, people were saying that for the most part, they think that Paul here was addressing a false teaching that those certain women who had gone overboard that I talked about earlier, that they had embraced some sort of false teaching and that that false teaching was that either Eve was formed first or that it some, somehow had to do with the woman's place in, 
in creation or I don't I don't know exactly I can't remember the exact wording but it was something about that so Paul is not saying that women have an inferior intellect or they are not inferior beings at all and that doesn't even make sense I mean you can go we can find that out in the in the creation story but I will say that there are very very prominent churches who believe this uphold it and enforce it yeah thank you for sharing <laughs> that and I know this has been challenging for you since this is very much how you were raised you know okay so I I never heard that from the pulpit but I don't know if my I I don't know if they believe that behind the scenes um, but I, I do know that none of my churches enforce the women must learn in absolute quiet and submissiveness. Yeah. So that's another thing. It's like the hands, the men raising hands everywhere. Um, like most churches, I don't know any church unless you're like a fundamentalist cult that enforces women to be quiet. Like nobody does that. Right. So, so, but that tells you the inconsistency in the hermeneutics in how you study scripture. You don't ignore verse eight, men everywhere pray, blah, blah, blah. Then you suddenly enforce eight, nine, 10 and, and ignore, you know, the, the rest of, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. You can't yeah. pick and choose. <laughs> you know, two things I find, well, there's many things, but two things I'm thinking of right now that I find interesting about what you just said is I hear church leaders who are like, well, we can't give in to the culture, whether it's women or gay Christians or anything else. But like, there's just certain things that we just ignore. And it's like, one of the things I like about that, what we're trying to do is we're actually trying to engage these hard scriptures and yeah. not ignore them, but just deal with them. Like, right. <laughs> we don't want to just like, oh, well, that doesn't, you know, like wish it away. Like we need to be wrestling with them. Yeah, and I think what I have heard, because the culture is so much right now about girl power, women's rights, women's equality, you know, which those are good things, but I agree they can be taken to the extreme of idolatry. Like you can go to the extreme of wanting a woman to have so much power that she has usurped, you know, everyone to get in that spot well that's that's not right either so i do know that churches are trying to they are trying to respond to that that whole cultural idea of girl power but again they are withdrawing from the culture and instead of saying okay let's talk about how we can engage women in an I hate to use the word permit, but that's what it is. Permit women to give them the freedom to use the spiritual gifts that God has given them yes. and not squelch them under this umbrella of you're a woman, you're a second-class citizen, you're not allowed to teach, speak, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. 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 Another thing I liked about how you presented that was that you looked at the context of scripture at a whole, as a whole. So I've heard people, they're like, what do you think about this one verse? I'm like, well, this one verse all by itself isn't very helpful <laughs> without yeah. its surrounding context in the chapter, in the book, and in whatever section of scripture we're in at the time. Yeah, like, we need exactly. to be looking at that 
as a whole. Like we weren't given this verse as like, here is your scripture. It's this one sentence. Like the whole Bible is the scripture. We need to be looking at all of it. Yeah. And okay. Let, when you were saying that, that reminded me too. So if, if you know, like, let's just say someone knows how to read biblical Greek and you read this, it, it's, it translates, it says what it says. So it's not like it has these magical Greek words that suddenly mean something different or yeah. it says what it says. So what I've heard on the pushback from that is, well, the Greek, that's what it says. So women are not supposed to teach because, you know, Paul said it. So that must be true. Well, again, yes, the language says what it says. But why did Paul write what he wrote? Yeah. And that's that's what we're trying to get at. Why? And and not just giving this blanket, okay, well, we're going to ignore verse 8, but but women, good luck to you. Do you have other takeaways you'd like oh, to yeah. share with that us? That was a long takeaway. <laughs> I know. Well, I kept asking follow-up <laughs> questions. So. Okay. All right. So here's one more. The, one of the things, okay, I don't know about for you last semester, Leah, with Dr. Fanton, I'm going to say that experience, that semester was probably the most transformative period of my life in a really long time. Yeah. Maybe, maybe decades. I'm, so I said earlier, I'm 49 years old. I've gone to an evangelical church my whole life. Not the same one, different ones because I've moved. But this, this takeaway that I'm wanting to present is for people to have a teachable, moldable, soft, tender, humble heart. Like, don't just come to, the, to scripture thinking you've got it all figured out. Yes. Because I don't know about you through seminary, I have figured out that I don't have it figured out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, didn't you? I don't know. Didn't it's you think of, of a, It's kind of a classic stereotype, which is absolutely true in most cases, that the first year Greek student walks into Greek and they're like, now I'm going to understand the Bible. <laughs> and then they get in there and they're like, oh, I'm more confused. <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing. Yeah. For our listeners, when, when you apply to DTS and if you're accepted, they send you this Bible, Bible knowledge quiz. And, and it's not just a quiz. It's like the SAT exam. (laughs) I I don't remember taking it. I know that I did, but I got an email because I'm graduating in May and they were like, you have to take this. And I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah. It's so you're taking, (laughs) yes. So what they do is they send it to you the first and Okay, like I said, I've been teaching for like 18-something years. I'm a teacher, a Bible teacher. So I thought, hey, I know a lot about the Bible. Like, come on. So I think I made, I'm going to say it was like a 50-something on that thing. And I I realized at first I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> what am I getting myself into? <laughs> what have I been teaching people all these years? Like, nothing, clearly nothing. And, but... The point of that test, and while you're going to take the second half of that test, is it demonstrates, number one, that we know nothing, (laughs) or we don't know as much as we think we do, and then 
hopefully by the end of five, seven years of school, we've, we've learned quite a bit more. But that's the whole point of what we're trying to say is come to, come to Bible study with a teachable heart and be willing for God to uproot your world and, and just recognize that, okay, maybe I have been reading 1 Timothy chapter 2 wrong all of these years. It's possible. Yeah. And sometimes there's a lot of freedom there. Like I used to read those passages and my heart would just sink. I'm like, is this what God thinks of me? Like, I don't think so, but I don't know. And, yeah. and so like allowing yourself the freedom to study them is, it really is freeing and, and liberating. I'm going to piggyback off of that. And one of the takeaways I wrote down was the willingness to have a broken heart. Yeah. Like, my research mostly focused on um, gay Christians, and the more I read and I had conversations with friends who were gay Christians, and I just found my heart breaking. Like, my chest physically hurt for two days. Like, I, it took me a while to get to a place where I could actually cry, but I, yeah. I went into counseling. I was telling my therapist about this. He's like, Leah, that's called anxiety. I'm like, oh, cool. But, like, that <laughs> letting our hearts and break and dealing with it well try to avoid chest pain um but letting our hearts break for people and giving ourselves giving myself the freedom to feel their pain when before it's like oh well being a gay christian like that's that's you know that's that's hard stuff and uh yeah god wants them to be celibate so like that's what they got to do and that's kind of where the conversation ended for me a lot of the times um when i would have conversations about um same-sex attracted believers and so a huge takeaway for me was the importance of having a broken heart. And I think that is tied to coming to the text with some humility and openness. Yeah, I think you really nailed it on that one. Just, in fact, I think last semester, I, I don't think I've cried so much. Not from just, you know, like everybody cries because they've got trauma in their life or marriage or family, you know, there's always yeah. something, right? But this was a different type of heartache and it was just dealing and interacting and, and welcoming and including gay Christians in the body of Christ. I have to admit that I have not done that well. And that was a huge slap in the face last semester. And yeah, there was a couple weeks where I was just like, I have been guilty of this. And I just, mm -hmm. I remember going home one day and just sobbing, like sobbing for, for putting that barrier up for someone yeah. else. Yeah. Like, men tend to do that to women in evangelicalism. And now I've done it to gay Christians. So, wow. Like it's one of those moments that y you don't like to learn about yourself, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But those are the moments that God really works on our hearts. Yeah. I had a hard time picking where to cut this thing off, but I felt like that was a really good spot. I hope that over the next week, you will let God work on your own heart. And I look forward to hearing from you, I hope, and for you tuning in next week to hear the rest of this episode. Thank you for listening and God bless. 
This has been Apologetic Simplified. To learn more, go to www.apologeticsimplified.com. To support this podcast, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app, or you can give at www.patreon.com slash apologeticsimplified. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.